Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast that believes progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Henna Shah, and I'm joined by my colleague, Stephanie Lloyd, to discuss the latest from the world in politics in the run-up to a bumper election month, including the decision by the NEC today on Labour's European election manifesto. Plus, later, we'll have our interview with Rachel Reeves on her new book, Women of Westminster, so stick around for that one, and also the opportunity to win a signed copy of your own. And, if you haven't yet... Remember to buy your tickets for Progress Annual Conference 2019 on Saturday the 11th of May in London. Don't miss Jess Phillips, Stephen Bush, Della Creasy and many more. Now, let's get to it. So, Stephanie... It seems like the Brexit drama in Parliament is almost a distant memory. But while we press pause on the votes, we have a whole load of elections coming up. So first off, we've got the local elections on the 2nd of May and then the European elections on the 23rd of May. We've seen a lot of disenchantment and anger at politics and politicians over the past few months. So how do you think these elections will play out? I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, we've got kind of polling that's coming out currently that are giving us different indications on where they're going to go. I think the important thing to always remember with polling is that it can give you a kind of suggestion or an indication on what things will happen. It does not tell you what will definitely happen. Um, So it gives you an idea of what's likely. Let's take the two different elections separately because they are very, very different, not only in their nature and their makeup and their electorate, but also in terms of the parties that are standing in it. So... If we look at the uh, local elections first, we're really seeing a big, big hit being taken to the Conservatives currently. So they actually, last time the majority of people were voting uh, in the local elections um, that are up again this time was four years ago. That was the 2015 election. It was when David Cameron got his majority. It feels like that was about 100 years ago in terms of politics. Yep. Um, But... That was also where the Lib Dems took the biggest hit they've ever hit, they've ever taken electorally. They were being punished really significantly for the coalition government and they hit their lowest peak of it. So we're seeing a big dip currently in terms of what we think the Conservatives are going to get. It's going to be a very, very difficult night for them across the country. And we're going to see a really big surge in terms of the Lib Dems. Again, the important thing to remember is they're coming back from a very low base. Um, Labour seems to be doing reasonably well. Um, We're definitely taking some of that Tory vote. Um, but I mean, also Labour's not standing in, it's only standing in about 70% of the of the places that it could do. So it will be interesting to see where that spread is like across the country. But it will be a very good night for the Lib Dems. It will be very, very difficult for the Conservatives. Labour will kind of ride a bit through the middle, picking up a bit on either side, losing some in, in, in different areas, and particularly with more of an anti kind of Corbyn vote in places like the West Midlands. But it will not be, I don't think, as interesting to see how that will play out electorally, national politics wise, as the European elections. No, absolutely. And obviously with 
the European elections, we see the far right becoming more of an electoral threat. So unlike in Westminster elections, where we have the first past the post system, which often limits smaller parties, European elections are decided via a form of proportional representation. Um, so Hope Not Hate have done some polling that says that the new Brexit party are polling at almost 30%. Is that worrying? What do you think about that? I mean, it's very worrying. And, and this is why I say those two elections are very, very different, because in the local elections, Nigel Farage's new Brexit party and also Change UK, the independent group slash Tiggers, the party with more names than it has policies, <laughs> um, they aren't standing in the local elections. They're only standing in, in the European elections. Mm. So it will be a very, very different look in terms of, of how it works. We've got, as you say, the kind of Brexit party on 28%. The majority of that is coming from the Tories and also coming from UKIP. UKIP are decimated. They are right down at the bottom with 5%. Um, and the Conservatives are dropping all the way back to 13. Mm. Now, they've even dropped, they were 17 last week. So they've dropped five points even within one week. So their vote is absolutely hemorrhaging. Um, it was quite interesting to see over the weekend that Conservative HQ put out a memo to all of its members, activists, and most importantly, its elected representatives mm. to say... If you back them, we will have to kick you out. Obviously oh, wow. It's, well, it's, you know, it's a prerequisite of joining a political party. You can't be a member of the Labour Party and also vote for another party. That's not how it works. Um, and you certainly can't be an elected representative for a party and support another. So they are worried, basically, because there was lots of rumours came out. There was some polling that came out that said 40% of Conservative candidates were thinking of voting for the Brexit party. So they are in very, very dire straits. Yeah, I think that's quite interesting as well. We think about what's happening in Westminster. Like there were some rumours last week that May would try and bring MV4, but it's very clear that there is a realistic chance that the Tory party could split if mm. it doesn't go through again, Yeah, from what you've said. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so if you look at the kind of rest of the parties, Labour's on about 22, so it's the second party in terms of the polling and how that works. Um, you've got the Greens on about 10, you've got... Uh, the independent group, Change UK, whatever we want to call them, um, they're on around 10%. That's mostly coming from the Lib Dems. You've got the Lib Dems only on seven. You've got UKIP on five, uh, and they will look likely to lose all of their seats if this stays. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the SNP on around 5%, but that's a very sizable chunk of Scotland in terms of how that's working. The things that are going to become very interesting in this is there will almost certainly be a very low turnout in this election. Now, there's normally a pretty low turnout in comparison to general elections anyway, and particularly if you look at the kind of referendum result when it comes to the European elections. It's one of the problems with it is people feel very disengaged from that European process. But this will really, really be about whoever turns up wins and more so in this than anything else. And a much lower turnout really increases... The, the chances of the far right. So this is where that kind of fudge that Labour's doing currently of, are we a party of Remain? Are we a party of and that kind of a better Brexit and mm. how that works? This is where it's going to become really tricky for them because Labour are losing more votes currently in Labour leave areas. Um, and that is, that is true. That is what is happening. They are moving more towards things like the Brexit party. But you also need to remember that there are there is a significantly larger chunk of Labour Remain voters than there are Labour Leave. So the Labour Remain voters are starting to drift then slightly more towards Change UK or, or the Lib Dems coming out very, very strongly as the yeah. party of Remain. They're even having that on the ballot. Um, so this is why Tuesday or today's well, obviously we're recording this on Monday, while tomorrow's um, 
meeting of the Labour NEC will be so important because they need to come out strongly. They need to take a position either side because what's becoming very, very clear in the polling and how this is working is the people who are actually taking a position are the ones doing very well because people yeah. people know who are voting in these elections, what they want from the parties that are doing it. And those that are kind of trying to fudge it and sit in the middle yeah. ground are going to be punished the most by voters. So that's why obviously we've been running with the Labour Save campaign, the kind of, you know, campaign to get the NEC to back that. We've had, I think, nearly 3,000 yeah, now that's right. people lobby the NEC in terms of that, which is which is fantastic. This is a member-led party yeah. and it's about member democracy. And so. if you haven't yet, this goes out early on a Tuesday morning. The NEC is meeting at 10. So if you Still got time to email sign them. up to laboursay.eu, you can email your NEC representatives as they go into that meeting, which I suggest you do. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, but it's really interesting what you said, Steph, about the sort of fudge that Labour mm. seem to be doing. Um, do you think this is causing a problem on the doorstep? It definitely is. I mean, it depends. I've been out kind of more for the local elections. Obviously, the EU campaign hasn't really kicked off yet. Um, I live in South London, so I live in Streatham, CLP. Um, and we've had quite a lot of by-elections even for the local council recently. Mm. So we've been out on the doors a lot in terms of talking to people. And it is, I mean, it's different for us. It is one of the most main constituencies in the country. Um, but we are we are really getting kind of beaten on the doorstep in terms of that and, and it not being good enough. Again, there is that polarisation. If you go to certain areas of the West Midlands, they don't want a second referendum. That's not how they want to work. But, you know, we've got to think, you know, we are not just a party of individual constituencies. This is not a time for just triangulation and trying to fudge it and try and see if it will work. What people also want is very clearly an agenda of, of hope going forwards. And, Absolutely. You know, I don't see another party being able to really claim and have the ability to deliver on such a radical change for the country in terms of hope and optimism and rejecting that nostalgia mm. and bitterness and anger and hatred of kind of wanting to hark back to a past that doesn't exist. I think it's only the Labour Party that can do that. But there is a real surge of far-right rhetoric in this. And the polling yeah. that Hope Not Hate did was fantastic. And I mean, what a brilliant organisation they are. But it is very worrying. And you're seeing uh, candidates like Stephen Laxley-Lennon, Tommy Robinson. Um, yeah, he's in the Northwest, isn't he? He's signing as an independent. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've, you know, we've seen him in terms of, you know, he's put his name forward. He's come out and said he wants to be a candidate. There is going to be some really dangerous rhetoric that comes out of this and the only way to counteract that is it is an exceptionally strong message of hope and opportunity absolutely um going forwards and we can't be seen to be scared of that and we can't mm. seem to be pandering to any of that rhetoric and we wouldn't do it on anything else so uh, it's not acceptable that this is the time that we start to do it but this is where that kind of real vision of hope to be fair that the labor party came up with in 2017 that increased their vote share they've really got to pull that back out of the bag Absolutely. again. And they've got to say there are fundamental problems with this country. They were not the cause of the EU. We understand that this is, you know, this was what you were told were the problems you were lied to, but we also respect why you believed that those were problems in the first place. And here is the way forward. And here is the positive vision of the way forwards, but we need to do that on an internationalist yeah. basis and not on a closed down and kind of one part, one country insular vision. And also I appreciate how tough this is, right? Cause in such a chaotic political environment, it requires the Labour Party to show quite a lot of bravery actually to make the case against, you know, an, an electorate, um, who 
are tired, who've had enough of austerity, who've seen a lack of investment in the regions of this nation, and actually to turn around and say, to an extent, we failed you, and the Conservatives have failed you, and politics has really, you know, not been great over the past, you know, 10 years. And actually to turn around and say, look, we're going to make the case for how this could be different and being in the U is part of that difference. But we shall see if they choose to take the brave road or the fudge road. That's what I'm calling them now. Okay, well, thanks, Steph. Um, We've now got a special interview with Rachel Reeves coming up. Uh, She's written a brilliant book on the women of Westminster. uh, And you can win a signed copy if you review us on iTunes. So what are you waiting for? Get reviewing. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Right, so this week I'm joined by Labour MP uh, Rachel Reeves to talk about her new book, Women of Westminster. So... Rachel, thank you for coming on to the Progress Podcast. Lovely to have you. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your book? Well, about two and a half years ago, I wrote a a book called Alice in Westminster, which was the story of Yorkshire's first female MP who was elected in 1945. And until I was elected in 2010, she was the only woman to have represented any of the eight parliamentary constituencies in Leeds. Indeed, between 1970, when she stood down, and 2010, all the seats in Leeds have been represented by white men. And so I wrote her story. And in writing that, I felt that many women have been written out of our political history or our history more generally. And so this book is an attempt to rewrite some really remarkable women back into our political history and tell their stories. Fantastic. And why do you think you, why, what made you think that you wanted to write about women in parliament more broadly? Was there a particular reason why you chose parliament as the area? Well, I wrote the book about Alice and that really sort of uh, got me going on political biography. It's not my background. Uh, I was an economist before I became a member of parliament, but I am really interested in in women's history and political history. And there was a real gap, you know, there's just not nearly enough writing about the women who have shaped our political history. And of course, last year was the 100th anniversary of some but not all women, women winning the right to vote. Mm. And this year is the 100th anniversary the first woman to take her seat in Parliament. So I thought it was a natural moment for a book like this to be written and I decided I wanted to write it. You quote a lot of memoirs in your book um, as well as using interviews of politicians um, who are alive today. How do you go about choosing your sources and what do you look for in the quotations that you used? Well, the research, was I really enjoyed doing that for the book. And there are some really good uh, biographies of, of individual uh, women. Laura Beers has written an excellent uh, biography that came out about Ellen Wilkinson a couple of years ago. There's um, also um, a wonderful biography, Red Queen, uh, by um, Anne Perkins of Barbara Castle. Susan Pedersen has written a great book about Eleanor Rathbone. So there are some individual books about some of these remarkable women and and also some memoirs. Um, For example, Barbara Castle, of course, kept her, her diaries. But a lot of women, their papers were destroyed. 
after they died. So um, Eleanor Rathbone, her um, her partner, um, a, a woman um, who she lived with for most of her life, destroyed all of her uh, papers. Ellen Wilkinson, when she died, um, her brother destroyed her papers because he was worried about um, stories of, of affairs that she had um, coming out. And so it's not as easy as it should be to get source material on, on some of these great women. Women like um, uh, Margaret Bonfield, for example, the first woman to have served in a British cabinet. Um, there's very little written about her. A fellow MP at the time, Mary Hamilton, uh, wrote a, a biography of her, but it's very dated now. And that's part of the problem of writing this history. Harriet Harman actually puts this very well. You know, men keep diaries. They think that people are going to be interested in them Mm. um, um, uh, after they retire or after they die. Women don't have that same expectation. And so there Mm. are fewer diaries, fewer Mm. memoirs written by women um, about women. Uh, And so I think I've managed to source together on most of the material that there is. And I added to that by doing interviews, not just with serving um, uh, women in, in Parliament, but also some of those who have now stood down. Hey, that's amazing. It's actually really interesting what you just said about women not expecting to be listened to in the future. And it almost feels like from what you're talking about with the source material that sometimes the women you're writing about were slightly afraid to write write down the truth or record what their lives were like because of social pressure and stuff like that. I think there's a whole um, range of reasons why um, women haven't written their history. I think some of it is this sort of, um, you know, this idea that actually the prime minister raised it when I interviewed her, you know, men, a lot of men have a very high opinion of the, themselves and, and, and think that they, you know, somehow have a, you know, a right to, to be where they are. A lot of women and uh, Barbara Castle, even though she was a really remarkable uh, woman, achieved so much, almost mm. had this imposter syndrome that she shouldn't be there doing this. She once said, sometimes I feel like I'm a second rate mind trying to do first rate things. And then she said, but it's better than being a first rate mind doing <laughs> second rate things. But the idea that Barbara Castle didn't think that she was first rate uh, is a, probably a surprise Amazing, to those who, uh, uh, who who follow her. But, you know, for various reasons, women don't write their, uh, their they keep their diaries and write their memoirs. And one of the other reasons is that um, a lot of women who are interviewed for the book mm. talk about the challenges of, of trying to bring up a family whilst also mm. serving as an MP. And sometimes I think perhaps there's not enough hours in the day for women to do this. But, you know, I think this is a, a, a plea to women to, uh, to write their stories, to keep the diaries, to keep their papers so that future generations can find out a bit more about what you did mm. and how you did it. And obviously, as you mentioned just then, Rachel, you interviewed the Prime Minister for the book. And quite interestingly for a Labour MP, and I think certainly in the world of political writing, you chose to write about women in Westminster as a whole, not just women from the Labour Party. What kind of challenges did you have sort of understanding the structures of the Conservative Party and Conservative Party history? Well, for me, you know, the hardest part of the book was to write about Margaret Thatcher because, you know, like all of us in the Labour Party, I had very strong uh, feelings about her. I joined the the Labour Party because I disagreed so much with the direction that she took our country um, in. Um, but I wanted this book to be, a, you know, a celebration and a story about women across the political spectrum in in Parliament. And so I needed to sort of overcome those prejudices of, of, of my own and speak to people who 
I might not agree with on on everything. And so I interviewed uh, some uh, conservative uh, women who previously ministers like uh, Virginia Bottomley, Gillian Shepherd, um, Edwina Curry, Linda Chalker. And that was really important for me. Somebody who also was very helpful in terms of researching this book was Anne Jenkin, who is now in the House of Lords. She set up Women to Win in the Conservative Party with Theresa May. And you know, she was very good on the processes in the Conservative Party. And she's got a real history in this because her grandmother in 1945 was the only Conservative uh, woman wow. elected to Parliament. So you know, she really could help tell that story of Conservative um, women in, in politics over time. Absolutely. And sort of, as I said, you cover a lot of ground. Um, How did you approach the challenge of picking which women to write about and which stories to focus on? It was really hard to to do that, Um, especially actually for more recent years and and chapters, because the book goes all the way up to um, 2019. And of course, today we have 210 women in Parliament, so uh, harder to, to, to choose which MPs to concentrate on, whereas in the early years, there's so few women, you write about most of them. Mm. The way I tried to approach it was that, you know, in, in every decade, there may be, you know, two or three or four real stars um, from the women MPs. Uh, but then also the stories of some lesser known women who I wanted to bring to life. And so that's what I tried to do in the book. You know, of course, I write about um, Nancy Astor, um, uh, Margaret Bonfield, El- Ellen Wilkinson, um more recently, Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May, Harriet Harman, Diane Abbott. But I also wanted to draw out the stories of some women who are less well known. So, for example, Thelma Castlett Keir from the Conservative Party, the Independent MP Eleanor Rathbone, uh, the Labour uh, MP and 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 the first uh, chair of the uh, Women's Parliamentary Labour Party, Joe Richardson. So, I wanted to speak about some of those lesser known women as well uh, and bring their stories to life. And um, um, what was the what were the favourite stories that you kind of uncovered? Was anything were, were there any stories that were new to you that really struck you as um, being very unknown. There are lots of stories which, you know, I felt ashamed that I wasn't um, aware of. So for um, example, uh, Eleanor Rathbone was the first proponent of family allowances, which is today better known as, um, as, as, child, as child benefit. And she proposed that um, they were paid to the mother uh, to recognise the um, the work they did in the home and bringing up children that wasn't remunerated. Uh, so that campaign that led to the first family allowances in the mid-1940s uh, was a really important story and something that um, MPs have built on with child benefit and, and tax credits, of course, during the uh, new Labour years since uh, then. Um, also, the, the campaign for equal pay, you know, rightly, equal pay will forever be associated with Barbara Castle and the uh, Dagenham Ford strikers. But actually, a coalition of cross-party uh, MPs, cross-party women MPs, in the 1940s first started campaigning on this, including Edith Summerskill for Labour, but also with Thelma Castellet Keir and Irene Ward from the Conservative Party working together to get better pay and conditions for women in the workplace. So stories like that, I think, um, especially at the moment when 
politics seems, you know, pretty bleak and doesn't feel, to be honest, when we come to work every day, that we're making a, a huge difference to read about and research and find out more about uh, some of the achievements of, of women over the last 100 years um, you know, is really encouraging and reminds us what we went into politics to do to make a difference to people's lives. Yeah, I really enjoyed actually um, the bits of the book that really shone a light on how women have worked cross-party um, and the challenges that that comes with as well throughout the book. I enjoyed that. And that starts, you know, really at the beginning. And Margaret Wintringham, who was the second woman to take her seat in Parliament, uh, she proposed um, uh, legislation for the equal guardianship of children. And before 1925, in the case of separation or divorce, women had, mothers had absolutely no rights over their uh, child. Uh, the children were the property of their father. And she asked the men in Parliament to do a mental somersault and imagine themselves in the position where they desperately desired the custody of their own child but were denied it. And she worked very closely with Nancy Astor, who was a conservative, Wintringham was a liberal. They worked together uh, to achieve that change, which started to end that heartbreak of women losing uh, access to their children. Fantastic. Do you th is there anything else that you found particularly surprising? Obviously, we talked a little bit about... Um, Barbara Castle and Margaret Bonfield and cross-party working but was there anything just a bit weird that you found out? Anything that made you rethink how you thought of certain politicians or? Um, I think a couple of stories both involving uh, Jenny Lee perhaps. So uh, Jenny Lee you know very much on the, on the left of the Labour Party um, but she once fell out with Barbara Castle on the issue of equal pay and Jenny Lee said to um, to Barbara Castle you know uh, should women be the priority? Uh, we can't ask for equal pay for women until the minors are better paid and Barbara Castle replied in that case Jenny will be waiting forever uh, <laughs> and then Barbara Castle of course went on to uh, to, uh, to to bring forward that equal pay legislation in, in 1970. But you know, that was a debate within the Labour Party with you know Jenny Lee on the wrong side of that argument. And you know, Jenny Lee is always someone I've been a bit of a fan of, a great biography of um of her by um by Baroness uh, Hollis, who died um uh, sadly recently. Uh but then also a wonderful story about Jenny Lee securing the legacy of the open university. So uh, Jenny Lee um in fact, this this year is the 50th anniversary of the creation of the Open University. And, you know, Harold Wilson said to Jenny Lee, I've got this idea, the idea of the university of the air. And Jenny turned this into a very real thing, uh, the Open University, which has made such a difference to people's um, lives. But um, ahead of the introduction of, of the Open University, um, she knew that, uh, or just after the introduction of the Open University, she knew that Labour were going to lose office. It was likely that Labour was going to lose office in 1970. And so she wanted to convince the Conservatives that they too should embrace the Open University. Margaret Thatcher was the Shadow Secretary of State for Education and oh, wow. she disagreed. She thought it was a waste of money, that it would, uh, you know, just uh, encourage people to do pointless subjects. Um, but Jenny Lee spoke to her and made her realise that the Open University could be part of her own emergent political philosophy mm. about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, about self-improvement, uh, taking responsibility. And so Margaret Thatcher became a convert to the idea of the Open University and persuaded the Conservative shadow chancellor and then to be Chancellor Ian MacLeod to support the Open University. And without Jenny Lee doing that, the Open University might have not have survived and, and flourished. And uh, loath as I am to give Margaret Thatcher credit for something, Jenny Lee did manage to use her powers of persuasion to get Margaret Thatcher on board. 
That's amazing, isn't it? Two people who are absolutely so different in their politics finding some common ground, which uh, at yes. the moment seems sort of <laughs> <laughs> really, really lessons far away. From, lessons from Jenny Lee and Margaret Thatcher <laughs> on working together. But you know, I think this this the, the point is that you know it's easy to convince your friends of your viewpoints. It's harder to persuade somebody with a different political philosophy. But actually, the way to get lasting change, and the Open University mm. is now 50 years old, the way to get lasting change is to convince uh, sceptics of your point of view as well. And that's something that Jenny Lee managed to do on this. And there's some wonderful stories in this book of women working together to achieve practical change. Um, what was it like interviewing the Prime Minister? Well, I'm very grateful to the, to the Prime Minister for giving up her time. I co-chaired the Joe Cox Loneliness Commission with um, the Conservative MP Seema Kennedy and um, Seema then went on to be the Prime Minister's PPS and so I approached Seema and said like I'd really like to uh, to talk to the Prime Minister and, and Seema who came a good friend um, of mine after Joe's death and because of the work we did together on the Loneliness Commission uh, she managed to persuade the Prime Minister to give up um, her time uh, to see me so last August I went to Maidenhead Town Hall in the Prime Minister Minister's constituency and met her before she did one of her surgeries uh, to talk to her about the book. And we spent 45 minutes together and uh, it was a wide-ranging interview. And actually, she came to my book launch and uh, she said um, the way that Rachel interviewed me is a lesson for journalists because <laughs> she actually got more out of me because I enjoyed the interview uh, <laughs> and we had a good discussion. So uh, I was very pleased that she, she, she said that. And, you know, actually... Although I disagree fundamentally with the direction that Prime Minister is taking us uh, in and her handling of the Brexit negotiations, she did speak very passionately uh, about trying to make the difference to the lives of, 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 of young girls and women, particularly on things like modern day slavery and human trafficking. And she got elected um, for the first time in 1997. And of course, that was the year that uh, saw 101 Labour women elected to Parliament and a lot fewer Conservative um, women. And it made her realise that the Conservative Party needed to change if it was going to win votes um, from more women and if it was going to better serve the country. And so she set up women to win in the Conservative Party in a way to emulate what the Labour Party uh, had been doing to get more women uh, into Parliament. And so it is an area that she does care hugely about. Uh, and and I hope that comes across in, in, in the book. Um, well, could you tell us a little bit about Margaret Bonfield? I mean, why is she not as famous as she should be as the first um, female cabinet minister? So Margaret Bonfield left school at age 14 and she left a chart in Somerset where she grew up and moved to Brighton where she worked as a shop assistant in a, in a tailor's shop. And she then one evening was having a dinner of chips and it was wrapped in a newspaper and that newspaper included an advert for the shop workers union and Margaret Bonfield then went on to join that trade union she eventually became its assistant uh, general secretary was the first ever woman to speak at trades union congress was the first Labour woman to be elected to parliament in 1923 and then in 1929 the first uh, woman to serve in a British cabinet. So a really remarkable story. But the truth is, when she became um, the Minister for Employment in Ramsay MacDonald's government, it was the time of the Great Depression. And the government were having to make some pretty impossible choices. 
And as Minister for Employment, uh, she was responsible for reducing entitlements to some benefits. And so uh, she did become um, unpopular on the left. And of course, then Ramsay MacDonald formed a national government that she didn't go into. Uh, in fact, she then lost her seat uh, in the wipeout for Labour in 1931 and she never returned to Parliament. So it was a sad end to a really remarkable political career. And I think we should look again at women like Margaret Bonfield and think in the Labour Party and in politics more widely, whether there are young working class girls leaving school at a young age who can rise up through our movement and our politics to become cabinet ministers, because hers is a really remarkable story. Yeah, that's amazing. I think we need to talk about how we can enable them to do that a bit more. Um, Last question, just to hop back to what you said earlier, you said, obviously, you're an economist by trade, um, writing a piece of political history isn't necessarily what you would naturally be interested in before. Um, Why do you think it's important for you to be writing this history? And why do you think that political history and political biography in general is so male centric? Well, I think if you in the last 100 um, years, if you think about uh, the number of, of people who have been MPs, I think there's been 5,000 um, men have been MPs in the last 100 years and less than 500 women. So, you know, the truth is there are a lot more men uh, uh, to, to write about and, uh, and more men write about those mm. uh, people. But, you know, whether it's the, 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 the household name women like uh, Thatcher or Harriet Harman or uh, Shirley Williams, or whether it is the unsung heroes of the last 100 years, there are some really wonderful stories about the women who have got elected, the battles they fought to get there, how they worked together to achieve change uh, when they arrived. And I think it's a, um, a history that all young girls and, and women should know, and men as well, because these are great women who deserve to be written back into our political history and who I hope will inspire a future generation of people to put themselves forward for politics and public service. And one more question from me um, on that. What would your um, advice be to anyone writing a book on political history? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, you can't knock these things up in a, in a weekend. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I've been working on this book for the last um, two and a half years wow. um, or, or so. Um, I approached it in a sort of chapter by chapter approach. Uh, it's about 10 years per chapter. Uh, I did lots of research into the the, the women uh, of that era, then picked out the ones who I wanted to focus on because it's not an encyclopedia, this book. We, I don't write about uh, every one of the, um, you know, almost 500 women who have been MPs over the last 100 years. You've got to decide um, how you're going to bring to life the women who you focus on uh, in the book, but make sure it tells a wider story about um, the, the political history you're writing about. That's how I approached it. And also to bring it to life, I really wanted to uh, hear the, the voices of the women I uh, write about. And that's why I spent so much time conducting interviews, um, going uh, to, to meet the, uh, the, the women who shaped our political history. And for those who are no longer uh, with us, uh, where possible, interviewing their, uh, their family and their descendants to try and find out a little bit more about those uh, women, how they became. MPs uh, and 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 how it um, affected their their lives and and how they approached the job. So that's how I went about doing this. I think bringing stories to life is really important because that's what keeps the reader gripped. I hope. 
Amazing. Uh, thanks so much, Rachel. Thank you, Holly. Uh, Woman of Westminster is out now and in all good bookshops. And there'll be a link in the show notes and also a link to the biographies and some more information about some of these amazing women that we've been chatting about. Thank you for listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes for your chance at winning a signed copy of Rachel Reeves' new book, Women of Westminster. And if you haven't already, I'm sure you have, remember to get your ticket for Progress Annual Conference on Saturday the 11th of May. See you on Friday. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.